God damn it, really? Hey, everybody, welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. <sighs> yeah, I'll never forget it, dude. We were, well, first of all, as the plane was landing, it, we w- I did a gig in Djibouti, Africa. It was for the USO. So we were, we were entertaining. Who are you with? U.S. troops. I was with a country artist named Laura Bell Bundy. It was actually a really wonderful experience. We played in Bahrain. We played in Issa, and we played in Djibouti, which was in Africa, on like military What are you bases. flying? Are you flying commercial or military? We flew commercial into Bahrain. And then once we got to Bahrain, wherever we flew was like military. And in fact, we did a whole gig on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific where they wouldn't even tell us where we were. And we landed on that in a cod plane, which is a very tiny, windowless, brutal plane. It was about a 30-minute plane ride. And when you land, you go from like, you go from however fast you're going to zero in one minute. They call it a controlled crash. You basically crash onto the aircraft carrier and they use these like uh, ropes and like rubber things to stop you. And when you, when you shoot off, they use steam. It's really wild. And how many people can fit in that plane? There were maybe 10 of us and they tether you to a partner. And I was tethered next to my friend, Jeff Pegas, who was playing drums who, and you're wearing like a mask and shit. You're wearing full on gear. It's hot. Horrible. And you're tethered to a buddy. And the dude I was tethered to, the poor guy, got sick and puked in his mask. Oh my God. While I while I was basically trapped by him. That sounds like human centipede. It was a little human centipede-ish. Maybe that's why I like that movie, is because I've somewhat lived it. But all that to say, we played Djibouti, and when we were when we were coming into Africa, we were on a, a military plane. And you could see people who lived in the desert and all they would have is like, they literally lived like under rocks and all they had were like newspapers and a goat. And then it was in the streets of Africa where I saw people who would just shit. There was just shit everywhere. Did you guys, when you played the show, did you play Shake Djibouti by by Casey and the Sunshine Band? No. Shake Djibouti. No, that was a missed opportunity. (laughs) Damn it. Dude, we did this. Oh, I did this whole. I don't think you were. I, 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 I know you weren't on it. I know you weren't on this on this tour. But we did this whole tour. I think it was for. I don't know. I can't remember what what record it was. But we went to all these radio stations. I think it, it must have been Perfect Day. Okay. But the guitar player I remember was uh, this other guitar player, and for some reason. I just got it in my mind that I was going to play I Got Soul and I'm Super Bad by James Brown. So every time we would go to one of these radio stations and play, and they would have, you know, they would have people come to the radio station and there'd be like 10 or 20, or maybe if it was a huge one, 30 people in a room. And then we would play, we would set up and play. Yeah. And they'd want you to play like the song that was on the record. Yeah. And we would always start out, ding, ding, I got soul and I'm super bad. And the radio people did not like it. Yeah. They were unhappy. Yeah. So it was doing more harm than good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they did not think it was funny. And we were, I, uh, we all thought it was pretty funny. Was it that Paul Curio guy? Yeah. Paul Mercurio was the guitar player. And the harmony was the bass player. Conrad was on drums. Right. That was the lineup when I met you guys. It was, uh, 
that Paul guy was playing guitar and I just assumed he was your guitar player. And I remember once I started playing with you. Oh, no. Actually, before me and you started playing, I got his number because we hung out at that gig. Right. And uh, I came through Austin playing with like Matthew Mayfield, playing with someone else at Stubbs inside. And he came out to the show. I remember like I would have texted him and said, hey, I'm coming through Austin. Be cool to see you. And he actually came out. And that was literally the last time I ever saw him. I love that guy. Paul Macario is one of the he was funniest, funny. Yeah, he was funny. Nicest guys I've ever met. He just... He just wasn't he was one of those guys that maybe could be better but for just whatever i don't know if it was because he didn't care or just didn't have the ability but he just wasn't quite he was good but not just there's just so many you know what i mean there's so many guitar players that you yeah. gotta be you gotta be really good and you gotta be I mean, he was a great hang so he had that part but well, we talked about it a little bit in the episode, but there are some guitar players who are technically very good. Like all on paper, they're very good. Right. <clears throat> but in like real moments, like real moments on a stage in front of people, they don't know what to do or they don't know what to do to like elevate the material. Yeah. And I've always just, I think it's because I can't really do the Steve Vai, Eddie Van Halen thing. I've always had to really live on knowing what to do in the moment. And your gig can be tough because there's, no there's no set list and you have to really right. listen well and not be a showboaty dipshit. You have to like, you have to have the tools to do it and you have to know how to use the tools. And a lot of people don't have that. Here's what you got going. First of all, great, 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 great hang. So, which is, I'm telling you at a certain point, it's really who's the best hang, you know, with the, with the gig because everybody at a certain point is really good. Yeah. But you're really good. And not only are you really good, but you're great on stage. Like you really know how to look and how to act and you you know what to do and you know when to lay out. Yeah. You know when to let the song breathe. You know when to step up and do your rock, rock star moments. Yeah. So you have everything covered and you and you and you sophisticated musically, so you have a really nice idea of what you should you know, what sounds good and what works. And so you, I mean, you got it all. Well, I hope we can <clears throat> make music again soon. Hope there's a reason to do I that. Know. I just watched that gig we played. Uh, was it in Temple? I think it was in Temple. That's online. The whole gig. Recently? Or, or from? The, no, the one we just did. Remember? W was it the theater show? Yeah. The, so we did two shows. We did one with your new drummer and then one with Wayne. So this is the one with the new drummer. It was it was just a weird Yeah, it was yeah, a weird it was, show. It was a weird show, but it but was musically great. but musically I mean I that was a big show for me because we hadn't we hadn't played it in a while. Right. And I was playing with this country dip shit forever and it was just we played the same set every night. I hated what I was it made me feel like I couldn't even play guitar actually. And playing that show, that was a big show for me, even though maybe like whatever, it was a weird gig, but for me, it was like, oh, I'm playing songs that are really good that breathe, and when I can, and I know how to play guitar. I know how to. We played a lot of songs I had wasn't super familiar with, and I was like, oh, it just reminded me, like, okay, I'm not a piece of shit. Like, there's joy to be had in playing music. I'm actually pretty good at it. And when you're with your friends playing good songs, it's as good as it gets. So that was actually a really important show for me. Well, you're you're incredible dude i mean i didn't know that it goes without online. saying that it goes without saying if you lived here you would you know you i would have you play all my gigs because you're i i really do think you're the best guitar player i've ever played with in terms of just all of it um 
I remember when we first started, well, when I first saw you, I was like, oh, this guy's great. I immediately got your number. And then when you came into the band and started playing, I was like, oh, this is what this should sound like. Right. This is what the music should sound like. It just immediately had this grand scale to it that I was like, oh, this is incredible. I mean, and not to take away from Billy Harvey, who was a fucking, who is a genius. Who yeah. He was yeah. a guitar player before. Bill Cass is a genius. David Grissom is one of the most lauded guitar players of all time. Played with me for a year. I've played with great guitar players. Those guys, I don't, I don't know how to describe this exactly. Like, but Billy himself is an artist. He's a singer songwriter, right? That probably in his idea, his great dream is to have a band that has a guitar player. But right. I'm not really. I don't have those ambitions, and I don't know what Billy Cass is like. Although I became friends with him and liked him, or David, but. I don't have that. So for me, it's like just learn the material and then where it seems like it's going to translate better live to beef this up or step out here, just do that. And it it presents itself and check in with the artist, which I on the, in the top end of that, I was always kind of checking in with you like, hey, what do you what do you want me to do? You know this? And I don't know if that's a Nashville thing, but it was always pretty easy for me to just learn the material the way it goes and start always start there. And then usually someone like you would be like, hey, you don't have to play that part exactly. Do do something more fun there, whatever. Make that sound more reggae or European or something, whatever. But I feel like someone like Billy, he's such a great artist in his own right that him being a side guy was probably, he probably wanted to put too much of himself into it or didn't want to take the time to like learn the actual parts, mostly even parts he probably recorded. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he the thing about Billy is like he just never... He would never learn the song the way I wrote it. <laughs> right. He would just play whatever he wanted to play, which right. is great. Like, it was incredible. But then when I started playing with guys who actually learned the songs the way I recorded them, I was like, oh, this is really cool to hear them like the way I recorded them. Yeah. I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought everybody funny. just did whatever the fuck they wanted to do. I mean, not, not in the small part of the world that I come from. Well... There is magic. There is magic that happened doing it that way. But I would say this, less magic in terms of just actual time, less magic time-wise on stage than than hard times. Yeah. More hard times than than magic. Yeah, because that's the deal is when it works, it works great. When it doesn't work, it just doesn't work. But yeah. when you're more middle of the road and more of a kind of honestly more professional side musician and you're living up to the artistic vision that the artist had initially you're more than not going to succeed what ideally the best thing is what you what you're talking about which is you start with the material you learn it and then you make it better yeah and that's where you really get true magic yeah most of the time where you're not trying to reinvent the wheel every when you're trying to reinvent the wheel every time with every song it's so hard even Dylan, he, I mean, he's the one who does that the most, but I don't think he really does it that well, honestly. I think a lot of Bob oh, Dylan shows are really hard to watch. They're terrible. You know, which is a shame because he's got such great songs, but that's his, you know, that's his philosophy. If he's not reinventing it, I don't think he feels like he's living, you know, to him, to him to not reinvent constantly is to die. I, I truly believe that he was traumatized when he went electric by those, by his audiences he was booed every night by his audience. I think at the end of that, he 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 at the end of that tour, he got into a motorcycle wreck, right. which nearly killed him. And I think the combination of those two things 
made him like hate the audience. No, I and agree. I, th- I, I think he hates the audience now, and I don't even think he's aware of it. Or he and felt he's betrayed by to, them. And I think he's just trying to punish people because he can. I know guys in his band. He can sing. He can sing like a. He can do all the material, and he just refuses yeah. to do it the way people want it. They, he just wants to make it shitty for people. Well, to, and to your exact point, there's a pretty heavy rumor. I mean, it's from 1966 or 67, but it's widely disputed that the motorcycle crash even happened and that he basically made it up because he was so traumatized by that tour that he was like, I need a way out and I don't know how to do it. So they think he maybe he did lay his bike down on a back road in Woodstock or whatever, but that maybe he made a bigger deal out of it, kind of, you know, near death experience in order to basically cancel the next tour and go into going basically going to hiding a little bit with his family because of well he's uh, he's you know. very famous for lying he's always uh, lying. yeah he just creates a he creates stories and it's a it's part of his genius I yeah mean, his name is not bob dylan right it's bob exactly. Zimmerman. it all starts there you know he he created this persona like he's very specific about the persona that he wanted to create like very wouldn't answer questions in a normal way, but very mysterious. He only did about 20 or 30 interviews total. Like you, if you go on a deep dive of like Bob Dylan interviews, you would think that in a 40 or 50 year career, you would see an interview every time you put an album out, but he really only did about 30 total. And most of them were in the sixties. My favorite is that 60 minutes one. I love it. My favorite thing about that one is when they ask him how he wrote blowing in the wind. That's my favorite answer. And he says, I don't know. And yeah, I don't know how I did it then. I don't know how to do it now. He, well, he says, you know, I don't think I could do it again. He's like, I can do other things now that that are I'm better at. Right. You know, and who knows what he, I wish he would have kind of gone into detail. But he was like, that thing, the Mr. Tambourine Man, you know, uh, to be under the diamond sky with one hand waving free. He's like, I don't know how I did it. And I don't think I could ever do it again. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. This guy's telling some, this guy's telling the truth right now, at least. Well, lyrically, he was doing stuff. I really do think... That when you're writing, you're taking a shit ton of information in your subconscious and squeezing it out of that. And when you're young, you just have the ability to to take just trillions and trillions of bits of information and distill it down. As you get older, you just have less and less ability to do it. And when it comes out, you're like, I don't know how I fucking wrote that. And you don't know how you wrote it. It's just, it's your subconscious. We got into a discussion yesterday, Ethan and I, about the Metallica podcast where in the mid 90s, when James Heffel was in his mid 30s, he was writing some really interesting material. And it's it's not the thrashy metal of the 80s. It's actually more like stoner rock, Alice in Chain stuff. And that's one of my favorite little eras. But there's a few songs that are kind of country twang, twangy. And someone wrote in and said, what if James made a, a country album now? And I thought, you know, I don't think I'd want to hear it now. I'd want to hear it from then. And Ethan made the point, well, a country album might be cool now with 20 more years on it with everything he's been through. And I thought, I don't think so, man. I think I think I think it would have been cooler in that weird fire cuz I I do think it's harder to to maintain that level. I think you do a good job of it. I think you could point to some artists that really did a good job of it. Like Mule Variations is one of my favorite Tom Waits albums. But I think for the most part that's really hard to do. You can get better at certain things which cover up some of the stuff that you do. I just, I've been listening to Paul Simon's Graceland. Oh, man. And the fucking lyrics in that, 
on that record are so incredible. Yeah. Like the song Graceline itself is just a fucking phenomenon. I know. Great lyrics. I know, dude. When he talks about, she says losing love is like a window in your heart. Everyone sees you're blown apart. Everyone feels the wind blow. It's so, all this shit in that song is so random. It's just coming, it's none of it's linear. Like he's, right. my traveling companion is uh, the nine-year-old son of my first marriage. Yeah. And, and, and we're, you're like, okay, he's, and he's, good, but we're going to go to Graceland and pilgrims and we'll, we all will be received in Graceland. And you're just like, it's just so random and so amazing. And you can just tell it's like, oh, this, this is a, obviously it's a divorce song you know yeah it's obviously, right uh this thing and i i don't know man that it's just so sick he says the mississippi delta was shining like a national guitar yeah and i'm following the river through the cradle of the civil war i mean <laughs> that's I some, that, that's some of the best shit but, ever for real but the whole record is like that the whole the record fucking, is deeply good yes you can you can be my bodyguard. I was going to say you can call me Al. That that's a great lyric too. But but the whole song is just filled. Uh, the boy in the bubble. Uh, boy in the bubble is great. The fucking uh, the where they sleep in uh, the he, he, he uh, diamonds Af- on the soles of his shoes. shoes under African skies. But that that line where he's like he was going to take her out to eat, but then they ended up sleeping in the fucking doorway of a fucking the bodega. Yeah. Bodega. How about how about in uh, Crazy Love when he says he's talking to his kid and he's they're looking at a picture of him and his wife when when they were young and he goes that was your mother and that was me back before we had you and life was great and you're the burden of my generation and I love you but let's get that straight amazing <laughs> amazing <laughs> Ugh. How about I know what I know? Oh, I love I know what I know. I used to hate the music to that. I mean, I will say some of the music's really out there, but I love it now. Cause it, and I know what I know. It's got that those background singers going, hip, 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 hip. What's crazy about the whole album is when it came out, none of those people were credited. And then they immediately were like, hey, these songs have been recorded. And then they should. They, so, so he had, to, he only gave those people credit for co-writes on those songs because they'd already been recorded but los lobos since they hadn't previously recorded that music don't get any songwriting credit for myth of fingerprints and they're listed as the players they that's them playing on the last song you mean on no on myth of print on myth of print fingerprints yeah that's, that's the last los song. lobos that's playing. the last song is it okay yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, not the whole album you're talking about but you're talking about that last song they weren't credited for that they, yeah, and they were like, "Hey, where's our songwriting credit? We we came up with the music, and they're like, well, you didn't write the song. I wrote the song. I just used that as fodder.' Wow! And he did that with the whole record when it came out. Nobody got credit. Was he trying to like kind of pull a fast one and kind of got busted or what? No, I don't think so. I think he was just like, well, this, these aren't songs. They're just jamming, and I'm just using that like the same way you would use like a studio musician. Like, here's the song, play it, and but he, instead of he was just doing it backwards where they were jamming and then he would take that jam and then write the song over that. Similar to like, if you wrote a song and then you had somebody come in and play it, you're not going to give the guitar player songwriting credit for playing whatever he plays on guitar. Yeah. Cause you've already written the song. 
So I think that's the way he looked at it was like, well, these weren't songs. They were just jamming. I was, I, it was fodder that I was using for the songs. And I wrote the songs because he did write all the lyrics and he wrote the melodies. Right. But on that song, he didn't write the melodies because that was already part of the song. Right. Anyways, so he had to go back and where he couldn't get out of it, he had to give songwriting credit to those guys like Lady Smith, Blackman, Bozzo. He had to give them credit for homeless. Oh, right. And all that stuff. But I think it's still just a fucking incredible record. I think if you're in that position, I think you have to err on the side of being generous with 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 publishing. You know, I, I think you have to be careful and make sure people aren't trying to you know, really profit off of you, your talent. But I do think if you're using someone's piece of music, even though you wrote the lyric and maybe a little bit of vocal melody, you got to, especially for an, an established band like Los Lobos, which I guess at that point they were probably a newer band, but well, it's like, it's like that bittersweet symphony, symphony yeah, with Richard Ashcroft. Like, right. He, he, he's, he had that, he had that, uh, you know, he had that little piece of music that he, uh, that Muzak, and then he wrote that song. Now that music, that music wasn't the song. He wrote the song, but you know he should have. In hindsight, he should have been like, "Hey, I need to obviously give part of the songwriting credit to this little piece of music. Otherwise, that song never gets written if I don't have this piece of music." He didn't do that. He tried to do what everybody was doing back then, which is like, "Oh, it's a sample, so you can just use it." And I think I think that's what Paul Simon did, but. I don't know. I mean, look at you. Look at it now, and you go, "Well, of course, you know, should have given him songwriting credit." I had a song called "Vulcan Death Grip," which I wrote, and then we went in the studio, and then Scrappy Judd Newcomb came up with that bam, which is the hook of the song. And then when we went in and recorded the song, he was like, "I think I should get songwriting credit." I'm like, "No, I I wrote that song before we ever recorded it. Before you came up with that hook part." And so I never gave him songwriting credit. If I did it today, I would I would just immediately give him songwriting credit. Like in hindsight, I would. Was he pretty bummed, or what, what, yeah. was that he was? No, I think he's still bummed to this day. Wow. And you know now there's no and and it 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 was played on the radio. He would have made some money off of it, right? And the same same thing kind of same thing happened with bullets on Lonely Land. The horn guys came up with that horn line in bullets. There's not much to bullets. But that that's a hook that's part of that song. Like when I play it live, even if I'm playing solo, I always sing that part. So it's it's structurally it's part of the song that I didn't come up with. They should have gotten songwriting credit on that, and I never gave them songwriting credit. Well, it's like the uh the dude that came up with the hook to my girl, boom, boom. They never got any of those kinds of credits. It was really I think just whoever was a chick, right? That bass player? Uh, I don't know. I, I thought that's shit? a guitar part. Oh. But, but I know that like in the Motown days, people would come up with those kinds of signature. They were called, they're called signature licks or signature hooks. Right. And they you don't get credit for that, you know? You don't get songwriting credit. Right. You don't get like publishing. I feel so. like, I, I do feel like though, if you play a song and you have to play that part to make the song, then that should be part of the song. I will. Yeah. I think the song. Yeah. It's it's like three things. It's the chord progression, the melody, and the lyrics. That part, that horn part in bullets is. I I didn't know who wrote that or who didn't or whatever. But if you would ask me how integral that was to the song, I would say that that's just as important as the vocal melody. For sure, it's the only. Well, it's the only melody really in the in the song. Right. 
the other stuff can be sung anyway because the other stuff's just all rap. Right. Yeah, I mean, again, if I were to go back, I would, I would give them the songwriting credit for that. Have you ever put songs on your records that were that were actually co-writes? Yeah, this new one's got co-write on it. Uh, Thor's a co-write with Matthew Electrician. That's right. That's right. Oh, I was in um, I was in St. Louis the other day at Vintage Vinyl, and our bass player was like, "I just found a record over there with your name on it, and it was uh, Room Full of Blood. Your vinyl was in there." Oh, cool. Yep, that was pretty cool. Well, that concludes yet another episode of I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay. You can write in bobandclint at gmo.com. You can leave us a positive review on iTunes and Spotify now, which we encourage you to do because it's the easiest and cheapest way for you to support the show. If you're willing and able and you want to give us five or ten bucks a month to say thank you for all the content we make every week, you can do that on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the letters I-O-K. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>